Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of For Art's Sake, an art history and museum podcast. I'm your host, Rhea. So there's not much to say in regards to my personal life at this point in time, thankfully. It turns out that being able to pay your bills and buy food and even some nice stuff for yourself, like Animal Crossing socks, which you can now get at Target in the electronics section, that all does a world of good for your mental health. I started training for my um, the cash office position at my job, which basically means that I'm there at 6 a.m., unfortunately, but it's okay in regards to the work so far. I think I got the hang of it. There's some stuff that I just need a little bit of a reminder on. Um, it's just that I have to figure out how to, like, try and wake up at, like, 4.30 a.m., and that's just been a little bit difficult. Um, and of course, the election, not the election, the inauguration happened this week, and, um, I had decided, you know, for this episode, I wasn't going to do it, like, an inauguration kind of theme or presidential theme, because I shouldn't always rely on that, even though it's very helpful, and if I do rely on it, I have to think a little bit better, you know? Um, and I just simply was not sure what was going to happen, um, with the inaugurations and nothing really happened. So, um, I feel comfortable recording and editing and posting the podcast. Um, but you know, with the inauguration, it's really interesting, um, as a historian and a museum person, like I can't help but think about how we're going to put this into context in museum. Like this inauguration is so different. Of course, we've gone through stuff before um, you know, hey, it's a war, the flu epidemic, world wars, things have happened before, and every single year, something is going on in history in this country, um, so it's never not that, like, you know, the country's divided, like, that's always, always been the case, but just with things the way things are now, it's just so vastly different in regards to how we even did the inauguration and just everything around it whatever so i can't help but think about just like how are we going to exhibit this different point in time um so i've definitely been thinking a lot about that but also like i've been thinking about how you know a lot of people this is like a joyful moment for them which is great and then there's also people who think that this just fixes thing fixes everything and that just is not the case and we can't remain complacent because simply this is like the most bare minimum below bare minimum thing that could have happened for any sort of progress so we have to be critical we have to demand change we have to keep doing the work and being uncomfortable and just doing things and not just giving up going to brunch and reading harry potter you know, and acting like everything is fixed because it just, then we're just going to end up in the same situation, if not worse. Anyway, like back to the podcast. I know that this is an art history museum podcast. Art history and museums are political. You should know that by now. Um, anyway, so I wanted to quick admit, like a quick note, a corrections, kind of like a corrections corner. Um, and this just reminds me of like one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Good Job Brain. It was a trivia podcast, um, but they've been on a very long hiatus, and I don't know if they're ever coming back, unfortunately. Basically, life just got in the way. It was not their full-time job, and, like, people got married and had kids and, like, went through divorce and, like, all these things that just really made it difficult. And that's all right. You can still listen to the episodes, you know? But anyway, they had this kind of corrections segment, and it was really cute because it was called, um, actually, because in trivia there's just this attitude this like pretentious thing and it's a way that people talk when they try to correct you and 
when it comes to art, of course, there is pretentious people. I've definitely been an um, actually type person. I don't know what I will call a corrections corner. Um, no one's really tried to correct me, which is nice. I'm just correcting myself before anybody else does. So it doesn't really have a name. But if anybody has an idea, that'd be nice. Anyway, um, so with the last episode, I talked about conservation. And I just wanted to get ahead of anyone and everyone by saying that, yes, I know technically conservationists are, it's not the proper term for an art conservator. A conservationist is someone who deals with the natural world, you know, like in the national parks and like science. Um, I do know that a lot of conservators are cool with the confusion because simply when you have the word conservation, people, people are just going to jump to conservationists. I know that there's a lot of people and it makes them sad or frustrated. And I understand that. Um, and I know that it may be disappointing for, as somebody who like literally went to school and worked in museums, um, and has this podcast for me to say the wrong term. And I do want to apologize for that. Um, it's not really an excuse, but more like an explanation. Conservator is something that is a little hard for me to say because I do have a speech impediment and I'm trying my best not to do so on the podcast because I'm the one who edits it and has to hear it and it makes me like anxious. Um, it's just that when I'm talking about conservation, my brain just wants to say conservationist. It's easier for me to say, especially quickly, and conservator takes effort and for me not to mess up the word and to be able to say it it's just just a weird thing i've talked about it to some other people and they completely understand um i am trying to work on that um trying to maybe be a little bit slower with my thoughts and my talking i do like i'm a fast talker so that's something i just have to try and deal with um so i hope you forgive me and give me the chance i am working on it So anyway, let's move on to the actual episode. So again, I know that typically I try and do a themed episode for whatever is happening. Like if there's a holiday, um, you know, I've done, you know, the whole month of October, I did kind of like spooky themed stuff. Um, And then major events like the election, I did a whole thing about presidential election. November, I did um, a couple of episodes, one of which, uh, I mean, November was just a crappy month because I had COVID. So I lost basically that month. I did a a quick crappy episode um, because I literally had COVID at the time on the um, American Indian Museum. And then I did one um, with NAGPRA and the uh, AIDS Memorial Quilt. So like, I think that's okay, but I don't want to always do that. And just because of the context of the inauguration, I was like, let me just do something different. So all that being said, the different thing I'm talking about is why the Mona Lisa is so incredibly famous. So the Mona Lisa has always kind of been a well-known painting, um, but it was just never at the level it is where it is now. Um, basically, the Mona Lisa is kind of like this symbol for art, for art history and for museums. It's just when you think about a museum, you may think about the Mona Lisa. Like Everybody has seen the Mona Lisa and knows the Mona Lisa. But previously, uh, people who knew about art and art history were very much aware of the Mona Lisa and were kind of the only people. And that was further narrowed down to like French art people and Italians too, to an extent. It was to the point where, of course, fakes, you know, reproductions were made of the Mona Lisa 
several, several years ago, decades, in different centuries, people were very much aware of that work and the skill of da Vinci. It was symbolic of, not really symbolic, but a good representation of a masterwork from the Renaissance. It was the in the 1800s that art critics, specifically French art critics and French art historians, who declared the Mona Lisa to be a masterwork. Not a masterpiece, but a masterwork of the Renaissance. And there became a little bit more popular, but it was really within the art world, world itself and really localized to the French, despite it being Italian painting. But of course, Italians did know about it and did love the painting, but there were other paintings. Something very interesting, actually, is the history of fake art and um, reproductions, which are two different things that kind of have some similarities. Um, and I'm kind of just like squishing them together. Of course, there are people, you know, forgeries. Um, and then there's a whole when um, artists were like pretty famous and successful. They basically had studios where they might paint one thing they were really good at, like let's just say a face, and it was their studio like their apprentices, apprentice, I don't know, they painted the rest. And then there's reproductions because simply there were people who could afford these reproductions, but it couldn't afford like originals, but they enjoyed art and knew about art and wanted to have those reproductions or even prints. Um, the Mona Lisa, just an example, was known enough to have reproductions of it. An example of this is actually at the Walters Art Museum that I worked at in Baltimore. Um, it was just a reproduction that happened to be made at a certain point of time, which adds historical context. You know, you have middle-class people and upper-class people who couldn't have afforded, uh, afforded original works by da Vinci, but they could have the Mona Lisa which is different than our time where you can get prints and stuff of work and maybe sometimes you can afford different work because there's artists on the internet. So that historical context makes it a historical work. It is like a complex thing and it's really interesting. Um, the reproduction of the Mona Lisa at the Walters was actually featured on an early season of Mysteries at the Museum where they discussed a conspiracy theory that the one in Baltimore was the real Mona Lisa and the one in France was the fake, which is not true. Anyway, all of that, I guess, doesn't necessarily matter. I'm just trying to explain that it's kind of hard for us to look at the Mona Lisa as not being so famous. It just has this level of fame and prestige that just didn't exist at that time until the year 1911. So on Tuesday, August 22nd, 1911, a French artist who just made these like kind of basic French still lifes named Louise Barraud. And you're going to have to forgive me because I'm not good with French or Italian names. Um, he came into the Louvre like he typically did because he wanted to do a sketch of the Mona Lisa, which was something that he enjoyed doing. And he was a little bit, I don't know, pushy or annoying, but he said that he couldn't do his work that day because he wanted to sketch the Mona Lisa and the Mona Lisa wasn't there. So after noticing that she wasn't in her usual space and there was this big gaping empty spot where the painting should have been, he talked to security, but by the way, security was obviously not to the level that it was in the museum today or really any museum, though I guess some small museums 
security was completely different anyway he was like where's this painting when is it going to be coming back um at that time there was this initiative kind of going on where the louvre was taking photographs of all their artwork and because of photography at the time and the way that lighting was within the louvre as well as just where photography was at the time the lighting just sucked so they had to take it to the rooftop so they assumed that the mona lisa was on the rooftop and the security guard talked to staff members and they were like no we don't have it and everyone's like um what's going on here and then they really realized that the Mona Lisa was missing probably stolen so they closed the museum for a week to figure some things out so this is just a great example as to why museums do the things they do today um, so when an object that was displayed in an exhibit has to be removed for whatever reason and the entire exhibit isn't coming down staff members will essentially leave a note for other staff as well as for visitors it's usually like a card or like a small plaque or even a, sleep, a slip of paper if it's like in a glass case and like no one can bother it basically the note will say something like sorry for the inconvenience but this work is temporarily down and there may be a reason giving for example it could be because of construction going on within the museum that may put the items in jeopardy or the item is actually on loan to another museum or it was removed to be photographed or to be cleaned at the bottom of the paper, there will usually be something for staff to prove that the object was removed, like initials with a staff member and a number assigned to the object in storage and even information just for staff as to where the object is located. So if they were not saying specifically as being photographed, they may have like a code for it being in like the photo room. Um, and also sometimes, you know, staff will not be made aware of the removal for whatever reason but because of this note because of like this system set up it's not that big of a deal it's basically more of a customer service thing like oh i'm sorry i was not aware that this painting was down um let me check uh it looks like it was removed because it just needs some cleaning it's just routine cleaning you know something like that it's a really great system for obvious reasons so during this investigation period, um, a famous French poet was arrested and imprisoned. And it's just really interesting that this happened to this guy. And I put it here because I don't really want to take away from the main story. But this French poet, whose name is Guillaume Alpignet, Alpignor, oh goodness, um, he was a major art critic who literally coined the term Cubism. Um, so he was a Cubist. <laughs> He was also highly influential to the surrealist movement um, and because he was a major critic and like he had these radical ideas he was a suspect um he <laughs> he was also arrested not just for the theft of the Mona Lisa but some Egyptian statues that were stolen a little bit before that um and what's just first of all that's really funny because he was arrested for stealing items that were stolen from a country um anyway as for the Egyptian statues, it was actually his former secretary who stole those. And during his imprisonment, he said that Pablo Picasso was involved. So, but both of, the, both of them were exonerated. But what actually happened? So let's start with the act of theft itself. The painting was stolen and held for two years by an Italian man named Vincenzo Perugia. Sorry. He was actually a museum worker who had worked for the Louvre at that time and had actually helped to construct the glass case around the Mona Lisa. 
Perugia entered the museum at 7 a.m. on Monday, August 21st, wearing one of the white smock uniforms that staff wore at the time. The Louvre was closed to the public on Mondays, um, but he still kind of hid away until the gallery was empty and he had ample time to remove the painting from the wall. So the Mona Lisa was attached to the wall with these four iron pegs. And after its removal, he went to a service elevator where he removed the glass case and the frame. All of this together was about 200 pounds. Originally, da Vinci painted Mona Lisa on wood, and a frame was added at a later date. Um, so he had to remove that, and so he only had the painting on wood. There was this police theory that is kind of like the general kind of misleading information for this story, that he had entered the museum on a Sunday because the museum would have been closed the next day and that he hid in a closet and waited until the museum was closed and then stole the painting. Um, and that also he hid the painting underneath the smock he was wearing. But actually, like I said, he entered that same day, stole it. It was during the day and all that. Um, but he also could not fit the painting under his clothes because the painting was too large and he was too short. So he had to take his smock off and wrap it around the painting. And he simply walked out the same door he entered that morning. And then he returned to his apartment in the city where he kept the painting in a hidden compartment in the bottom of a trunk. So during that time of investigation, the police had actually talked to every single Louvre employee. And that included him, of course. And he was able to persuade the police that he was not involved by stating he found out about the theft from the papers and that he um, was late to his shift on Monday because he was initially... He was initially, you know, considered suspicious because of being late on Monday, but what's really interesting is that he used, like, the French culture at the time as, like, an alibi, if you will. I guess, I don't know if it's still the same way, but supposedly Sunday nights in France are the nights to, like, get wild and party, so a lot of French people will spend their Sunday nights drinking a lot and partying. That means on Monday morning, they were super hungover. Either way, he simply told the police he was hungover, and that's why he was late, and they moved on, eventually going after that French poet and that artist dude I mentioned before. So, just skipping to the end a little bit here, because I'm going to explain some other stuff later on. After about two or so years, he took a train to Italy in an attempt to sell, or essentially return, the painting. He had to wait to sell the work because it went from this random work that no one seemed to pay attention to to a global phenomenon, and he simply could not sell it. And of course, one of the possible motivations of the theft was financial, and he eventually grew impatient with waiting for everything to die down, so he went to Italy. But of course, when he had revealed that he had the painting, it was game over. So technically, there were more than one thieves. He supposedly had some assistance from a pair of brothers, but the issue with this information is that the only mentions I see of them are from 2011, because a book about the theft was released in 2011, but in more recent papers and articles, I do not see this mention of the brothers. So I'm not really going to mention any more than that and just leave it at that because he was the main guy in all of this. There's also multiple theories um, just with this case alone. And one of them is that he didn't act alone because he was basically, um, I don't know if commissioned or contracted would be the right term, by a con man who was very famous for his art-related cons. 
Um, his name was Eduardo de Villafierno. Um, and he was, in this theory, considered the mastermind behind it all because he had ordered a famous art forger to create copies of the Middle Lisa so he could sell them while the original was missing. Um, but only one guy who, who was a journalist said this, and there's no other proof of it. So <laughs> that's the theory. So with the theft and the two years it was missing, the Mona Lisa had become outrageously famous. The painting actually literally became famous overnight as newspapers all across the world ran the story on their front pages. There are a few reasons for it becoming so famous. So during this time period, America continued to emerge as a very powerful and wealthy country with like really wealthy people who wanted to spend their money on art. And the French were honestly deeply upset because American millionaires were buying up a lot of the French art. So naturally, this theft of a, what is considered a French artwork to them um, was kind of like this slight. It was, even though it wasn't wildly known, was still as like a special thing to French people and specifically in the French art world, even though, again, it was an Italian painting. Um, this basically fueled the investigation within the country and made it like this global phenomenon. Of course, there were also the famous artists that were being accused of the theft. There was also rising tensions between Germany and France that made people think it was Germany behind the theft, which really made people upset. And then once the museum reopened, it became like this weird mix of shame and curiosity to go and see the empty space on the wall where the Mona Lisa once hung. Crowds and crowds and crowds of people flooded the museum. That included tourists from out of the country and out of the continent and famous writers and artists, most notably Franz Kafka. There were postcards created, cartoons were made in newspapers, and there were films satirizing the theft and eventually the painting itself. As the media storm around the theft grew, of course, the rewards for the return of the painting also grew in price. So when Perugia finally went and tried to sell the painting, he did so less as trying to straight up sell it and more of trying to pass it off as if he happened to just find this incredibly famous painting that was missing for two years when he was essentially just a random nobody. He thought he would be able to skate by and get a, just get the reward money, but uh, that was not the case. But, however, due to the possible other motivations or just him just being clever, um, when he was arrested and tried in Italy, he only spent seven to eight months in jail. So I had previously talked about the con man that may have been involved but probably wasn't, as well as the financial aspect, you know, just simply selling this work. But one of the biggest theories is that simply Perugia was being an Italian patriot. So remember, the Mona Lisa is not a French painting. But then... And now, especially, it is viewed as a very Parisian-French thing. It's the reason why people visit the Louvre, why the museum is so famous and iconic and is one of the major things that people think about when you even mention France. The French people had previously, before the theft, took the Mona Lisa in as part of their French culture because of Napoleon. Supposedly, to many, Napoleon had stolen the Mona Lisa, though there is evidence that he was given it to, like, as a gift. But, whatever. That doesn't change the way that people felt about the exchange of hands with the Mona Lisa. And like I said, when the Mona Lisa was stolen, French people were upset for a variety of reasons that all came down to, like, the French being upset about being slighted as being French. 
In his trial, Perugia did talk about how his fellow French co-workers treated him, which may have also motivated his theft if he was doing it more of like an anti-French, pro-Italian type of thing. They basically bullied him for no real discernible reason that I could ever find. Either way, he claimed to have been doing an act of service for Italy by returning the painting to its homeland, and this claim worked in his favor as he was treated as a sort of hero and had a very lenient sentence. However, clearly looking at the evidence in his letters to his family, he definitely wanted to steal the painting after working on the glass case so that he could sell it, never knowing how famous the Mona Lisa would become due to his actions. He simply thought that it was a old painting by a famous artist and he could get some cash for it in the black market. So the Mona Lisa was exhibited in the gallery that Perugia had tried to sell the work to before finally being returned to the museum in January of 1914. As for Perugia, he fell into obscurity. He had been in the Italian army for World War I and had a family, but eventually he died without any real information on his life and his death. And as for the Mona Lisa, of course, she lives on. The Mona Lisa just rose to fame simply by exposure as well as the mystery behind it people were seeing the mona lisa constantly the image of mona lisa all the time it just spread like it was basically went viral let's be honest and that with the addition of the theft around it and the fact that you know this famous french museum that had been a palace you know they just let one of their artworks get stolen. There was so much around it that just made people so curious and made people basically make memes and talk about it and fall in love with this work that they would have never seen otherwise. It just pushed her to the top. And it also seems that the rise to extreme fame did something really weird for the painting as there have been these multiple acts of vandalism. In 1956, someone threw a rock at the painting, which shattered the glass, and it did manage to take a tiny bit of paint off. There was this woman in Tokyo who sprayed it with red paint, though it wasn't really an act against the Mona Lisa itself, but more at museums. She was protesting the lack of accessibility by museums, and as I said before, the Mona Lisa is basically a symbol for museums. And there was this man who was in love with the Mona Lisa, and he tried to cut the painting to take it with him. The Mona Lisa is just, is just the most visited object in the world, and it's notorious for having the most worst dense crowd. This is the, going to the Louvre, the Louvre is one of the most famous museums in the world, and it's just so crowded that people say, like, don't go to the Louvre. Um, and, but of course, in regards to the crowd, um, something can be done if you're literally Beyonce and Jay-Z, but other than that, <laughs> the museum has reduced visitation to 30 seconds in 2019 to cut down on the line and i don't really know what they're doing in regards to covid um i did not think to look that up unfortunately but i did think it was interesting that you're only allowed to look at it for 30 seconds and there are people including myself that like can look at art for a while and you can't get close either just the fame and familiarity around the mona lisa makes it feel like it's always been this famous thing that when da Vinci created the work, he did so with not only the intention to make it famous, but with like the power to instantly do so. Finding out the real reason as to why it's such an iconic painting and it's now considered a masterpiece because of its fame. It was like a watershed moment for me in regards to art history. 
I was really taken aback and the whole thing about this painting just really makes me question art and famous art and what makes art considered good and what makes somebody like a famous artist because really is the Mona Lisa that remarkable um yes and no but it doesn't actually really matter because everything else about the Mona Lisa kind of eclipses the actual art the cool thing is that the painting over five is it's over 500 years old which is amazing and it's in really fantastic condition all things considered but it's not the painting or the skill or even the palette that drives people up the wall bonkers in love with this painting it just holds this different quality and this power that is simply shaped by mystery frenzy and celebrity there's this whole mystery around her smile and her eyebrows and her gender to the point of tinfoil conspiracy but this did not exist before 1911 and the only reason it does exist is because a dude who was poor and weird wanted to try and make money and do something else with his life but happened to do so at the worst but perfect time so i hope you like this episode um I know that the story about the Mona Lisa is actually something that is more widely known. It's not really like a secret or anything that hasn't been talked about. It was literally on Drunk History. So, and I think even uh, like several other po- educational podcasts have talked about it. Like I think um, Stuff You Should Know has talked about it. But I just wanted to do something that was a little bit more different than things I've talked about and wasn't themed. And I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that maybe you learned something. So, um, a new thing, um, usually I end that episode by maybe talking about the Instagram or maybe talking about the email, but recently I created a page, a Facebook page for the podcast, and you can just look it up uh, for Art's Sake Podcast and Art History and Museum. <laughs> no, it's for Art's Sake and Art History and Museum Podcast. I'm tired. You can just look that up at Facebook. If I would really appreciate it if you give it a like. I'm going to put updates there. Um, I'm eventually going to post other things um and i think that's going to be the best place to do so you can still follow the instagram for art's sake podcast and you can still send me an email at for art's sake podcast at gmail.com or sorry the instagram is for arts podcast there's no sake in there i just there's a lot of variations huh um but yeah i hope you have a good day and a good week and i will hear or you will hear from me i won't hear for you unless you send me an email or something like that next week and i i'm really excited because i have a really good topic for next week but yeah i will you will hear from me then until next time this has been for art's sake and our history and museum podcast and my name is ria bye <laughs>